0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Hello and welcome to Backchat. If the Nature Podcast is 1% inspiration, then Backchat is 99% perspiration. Yes, Backchat's back with our first show of 2018. It's also my Backchat debut If it's yours, then this show is a bit more freeform than the regular podcast and is a personal take on the latest stories from our team of reporters and editors. In today's roundtable discussion, we'll be trying to quantify the role that luck has to play in research, looking at how to report on the iterative nature of science, and how to avoid hyping the high tech. I'm Benjamin Thompson, and joining me on today's show are Heidi Ledford.
2: I cover uh, biomedical research primarily, but sometimes I write stories about plants as well.
1: Lizzie Gibney.
3: Hi, I am a reporter here in London, and I cover the physical sciences.
1: And Devaday Castelvecchi.
4: I do physical sciences. Also, I guess maybe I would be the black hole correspondent.
1: Coming up on the show, we'll be talking about lucky breaks. Is serendipity an important driving factor in science, or is it an unhelpful stereotype in the discovery process? Can we nudge the finger of fortune to point in our direction? We'll also be looking at a blooming debate about the first flower. In science, new research can be contentious. How do we go about reporting it? Is there ever a time when a debate can truly be put to bed? Finally, we'll be taking a peek at the quantum internet. Will it help me load cat GIFs faster than ever before? And how do we avoid overhyping it? Firstly then, science is littered with famous examples of fortitude. I think that Alexander Fleming's discovery of mold juice, which you might know as penicillin, is perhaps one of the most famous. Nature had an editorial a few weeks back looking at whether you can divide up the concept of luck. Lizzie, I know this is something that you've been looking into.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think there are so many wonderful kind of fables in science about the role of serendipity. And by serendipity, you know, we just generally mean a happy, unexpected finding, Um, and it's often used as a justification for why scientists should be really given free reign. But the thing is, you know, we are in our line of work tend to, you know, we tend to be evidence based, we are scientists, and there isn't a huge amount of evidence that actually says what the role of serendipity is. So it's kind of we're in a situation where it's used as a justification, but mainly based on anecdote. So um, there was a particular study that inspired this editorial and it it was attempting to quantify in some way to to try and make this subject a little bit more evidence based.
1: Well, I mean, is it possible then to quantify such an abstract concept then? I mean, what's uh, these guys come up with?
3: Well, so serendipity is this, like, entangled web of cause and effect. But so then the very first thing that needs to be done is to have some framework that means you can actually study it. So Ohid Jacob, who is at the University of Sussex, has been developing this framework for a little while. So he went through all the archives of Robert K. Merton, a famous US sociologist who kept newspaper clippings and articles and built up this massive archive with lots of examples of serendipity. And he looked through those and he built on them and he tried to classify them in a way, which which is step one of trying to understand the phenomenon. Um, so he came up with so the four different types of serendipity in science that he found. So one is where a discovery in one area comes about from targeted research in a completely different area. So an example of that was in World War II when there was um, a mustard gas explosion and the investigators went to try and figure out if it was caused by an enemy bomb. And in doing so, they noticed that there was an effect on the white blood cell count in the soldiers who were affected and this eventually led them to the idea of chemotherapy. So science was happening in one area, it led to a discovery in a completely different area. You also then have instances where you are just doing completely free blue skies research. The analogy is with um, you just going window shopping, seeing what you might like to pick up. Um, And there are loads of examples of that as well. So um, Wilhelm Röntgen, who discovered x-rays, he was just tinkering with a cathode ray tube and he saw some flashing light across the other side of the room that he was completely not expecting. Um, And then there are others where, say, you are trying to get a particular result, but the way in which you get that result is completely unexpected. So, for instance, Goodyear discovering vulcanised rubber, that was accidentally putting together two different materials um, on a hot plate. Um, So he he was trying to vulcanize rubber, but he had no idea he could achieve it in that way. And, And then there are others such as when you have a solution to a problem that hasn't yet emerged so uh, the discovery of shatterproof glass was by dropping a flask with a particular polymer mixture in it that made it shatterproof and it was only a couple of years later that um, there was the realisation that having shatterproof glass in a car for instance could save a lot of lives
1: well we've got these four categories then What do we do with them?
3: So having this exact framework was was what this guy's been working on for a while. Now the idea is that we actually also have data that we can apply that framework to. So he's going to get together loads of grants and find out about the patents and the publications that come out of them. Um, And in a way that he didn't really want to um, make public, in case other people copy his exact method, (laughs) Um, he is going to essentially see how often it is the case that research in one area produces results in another, how significant it is when that happens, the size of the discovery and importance, and ultimately from this, try and, and just build up a picture of how often these different kinds of serendipity happen and see what we can learn from that.
1: Well, that's definitely something that I'd like to talk about. But before we do, I mean, let's just have a bit of fun with it. I mean, I've talked about Fleming there and you've given us a bunch of examples as well. What, what do the rest of us have any examples of uh, their kind of favourite examples of luck?
2: It's terrible, but my favourite is always Fleming. But the reason is because I think I give him a bit more credit maybe than other people tend to do, because I think it's entirely likely if I had seen those petri dishes, I just would have said, oh, that's disgusting, and thrown them away. And I have times, you know, when I was a graduate student, I mean, I feel like my thesis advisor, he he was so great, and he was always looking for these accidents, you know, and he would help us find them in our data. And there were times when, you know, I was so focused on getting a result, you know, under one condition that I wasn't really paying attention to what was going on under other conditions. And he would say, whoa, 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 but look at that, you know, and that would end up being my thesis project. So, I, I find the question quite interesting.
1: I mean, what I, what I was thinking as well, certainly with what you've said there, Heidi and, and Lizzie, what you've covered there is, uh reminds me of Gary Player, the old golfer, who uh, is probably apocryphal, but he said, the more I practice, the luckier I get, yeah. <laughs> um, which I think is, uh, well, it suggests that it's really it's graft and hard work that maybe puts you in the right place. And it's that eureka moment isn't really the thing. And is that perhaps even an unhelpful stereotype that people just assume that someone's sitting there chewing on the end of their pencil and suddenly they have that ding and, and then science happens.
3: Well that, that's it and I think um, often actually what it is, is is the environment the all the different discoveries and research up until that point that make everything ripe for a discovery to happen and yes there might be one person who has that particular light bulb moment where they make this discovery but as we saw with I think the most famous example is probably um, Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace they both came up with this theory of evolution at the same time, even though it seemed to be so remarkable and countercultural. And, and, you know, we think of them, then that's a great example, because they were both fantastic scientists, but working in a time that made that discovery possible. And I think that is often the case. It's very hard to know um, wh- whether it's some attribute of a particular person that means they were likely to see something others didn't, or whether it was a big combination of factors.
1: In the world we live in now, people want bang for their buck, right? And again... Which seems fair enough. Yeah. Taxpayer money. Of course. I mean, most research is publicly funded, I would imagine. And so it seems only fair that you get results from it. But are we getting away from just being able to use luck at all? Does everything have to be so mechanical?
3: Well, I think one of the things that this study may come out with, which was certainly suggested from looking through a lot of the examples from history, is that often targeted research doesn't have to be a bad thing because as long as you're able to make some discovery in another field at the same time because in in an awful lot of cases that's what was happening they were looking for something and that was fair enough because they needed the next whatever bit of technology but the situation around it was such that when this serendipitous thing dropped into their laps they were able to exploit it i think that's the really important thing so it's not necessarily bad that we you know use funding for applied research and that we try and go in a particular direction as long as it's then possible for us to exploit the unexpected findings that happen while we're doing it so that you know Heidi when you were looking through that data and your supervisor said no wait look look at this you didn't have to go oh god but I've got to publish three papers before the end of my PhD or I won't you know get my postdoc after that you know you don't ignore those things when you find them because that would be the real problem.
2: I mean I I like this idea of challenging the the blue skies notion and saying, oh, you know, we need to be free to pursue our creative you know, our, our curiosity because we may turn up things that we didn't expect and that's where, you know, lots of great discoveries come from. Because as long as you are, you know, exactly as you said, as long as you're still doing the research, you still have the chance to make these observations. Um, but then I do wonder, you know, maybe you do still have to be willing to support something that seems like it's quite basic in those initial discoveries because otherwise you've got to carry it a bit further.
3: I think that's it. I think there's there's always going to be a balance and I think this study is hoping to come up with maybe just even a little bit of evidence, however weak, because at the moment there's none, um, mm-hmm. that says, for instance, how, where that balance should sit or if we find that the most important instances of serendipity happen in one type of completely open-ended research versus targeted research, that also would be something we should know. So, Yeah, it starts here really.
1: Okay, then, well, back chat. as I understand it, is all about the process of reporting as well. And do you find that there's an element of, of luck to what you do? Do you fit into one of those four boxes at all? Can you give us some examples? Or is it literally, you know, you do the hard yards and get the results?
3: I think it's like your golfer chap, whose name I can't remember. If you've built up all of your networks and you chat to people enough, the best stories will probably come about through a random conversation at a conference or something. But you've got to be at the conference. You've got to know that person. You've got to ask them a few open-ended questions, or you've got to build up their trust enough for them to want to tell you. So it's all about the situation you establish, really.
4: And yet, when when I do go to conferences, then a lot of times the best things I get out of them are not the ones that I expected. I went to a conference uh, more than 10 years ago, which is uh, more like a popularizing science kind of conference. Uh, where journalists usually don't expect to find news or, or things to report. And that's what I first learned that there was this thing called the quantum internet or that people <laughs> were thinking about it. <laughs> and this may be uh, relevant to the later part of our conversation.
1: Oh, absolutely. And listeners, more on that coming up. But before that, a bit of a debate has grown about what the first flower looked like. Heidi, this is something you've covered for Nature. Could you tell us a little bit about the opening rounds of this discussion?
2: Well, first of all, it's a long-standing question, right? This is something that people have tried to answer through analyzing fossils, but the fossil record is quite scarce for for flowers. They're so soft and delicate. Um, But a few years ago, some people decided to take more of a big data approach to it, and they assembled a team together to um, characterize the traits in a lot of different species of plants and characterize their flowers. So they analyzed um, over 20 traits in uh, about 800 different species, they form this big database, and then they tried to match that up with some of the molecular data that we have on how these different species are related to each other evolutionarily. From that data they tried to crank out what would be the f- the first flower, what features it would have.
1: And uh, what what did they sort of posit that it might look like?
2: Oh, you know, a lot of the things that they were looking at are things that we don't typically look at when we're looking at a rose, for example. So they didn't have data on, for example, how big the petals were or what color they were. But they had, you know, some data on the, the arrangement of the petals. They looked at the arrangement of the, the male and female reproductive parts. Are they on the same flower was one. Um, and they also looked at things like how many different reproductive parts did they have, you know, how many different female reproductive parts did they have, how many male and so forth.
1: Well, recently then, though, Heidi, like some researchers have come back then and said, well, hang on a minute.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's a neat story I think because you had this team working together and and they had the sophisticated modeling they were using, um, and they come up with this image of a flower and they did they they did actually have a sculptor put together a model and then they scanned that model and made that you know an image that they put out with the paper. But you know despite all of this analysis, there was this uh, plant morphologist who looked at that paper and he looked at that flower and he said, mm, I don't I don't think so, um, because he had looked at so many different flowers and he understood the morphology so well and he said, Yeah, I don't I don't think that kind of geometric combination of parts really exists in nature and I'm not sure that it ever could and so that's that was the debate about it.
1: You mentioned there that the lack of kind of historical record for flowers does this debate get us any closer to what it might have looked like?
2: I mean, I think so. I think they're, you know, they're still working to expand their database and to, you know, continue their analyses. The debate is in the form, really, of a of a commentary that was published in the American Journal of Botany. And the the person who received it and you know was working on this this project, this eFlower project, it's called. Uh, he said when he first got that letter, he was just so nervous. Thought, oh no, what is this going to be? But then when he opened it up and he read through it, and he thought, oh no, okay, yeah, this makes sense. This makes sense. And so he he went back and he looked back at some of the data that they had that suggested that you could have this particular combination of features um, in the male and reproductive parts of a flower and, and he realized that you know maybe they had misscored a couple of the flowers that they had in there so he didn't 100% agree with the criticisms that were lobbied about that work but he you know some of them he did think oh yeah you know looking back at it maybe they're right and he redid the calculations and he came up with an answer that was i guess closer to what people might have expected to see which was that these male and female reproductive parts shared a similar geometry um, around the central axis, and that was, you know, what was sort of triggering the debate.
1: Well, this seems, I guess, like quite a uh, quite a fruitful discussion oh, there. But I know <laughs> that from a, oh, yeah, <laughs> listeners, I apologise in advance. That was a mistake. Um, all right. Well, I mean, say this is, you know, backwards and forwards, and they seem to be getting on relatively well. Mm-hmm. But I think we can all say there are examples where we get two groups with very entrenched views. You know, I say X. I say why, we'll never kind of meet in the middle. How do we get around the he said, she said arguments?
2: I think really what you have to do is just present the argument to the readers and then kind of, you know, present some of the evidence on either side and kind of let them decide which side they're going to to be on. And, you you know, you try to go beyond if you've got a he said, she said, you try to go beyond he and she and, and gather others. But you do oft, sometimes find cases where you've got you know teams entrenched on one side or the other and it can be difficult to and the
3: problem is often the things that they disagree on are important but really boring yes so like they go really really into depth and it's yes. like each little nitty-gritty point and you just think I can't put that in a story because nobody is going to delve that far the overall conclusions they disagree on fine but the whys and wheres of it can be very hard to actually weave into a story. And then so it's often, as you say, about getting people completely independently talking about where the community is right now. And maybe sometimes that is the story as well. You don't have to come down on either side, but you can just, you know, the story is debate, confusion, ongoing discussion about this hot topic.
4: I do agree with Heidi. It it vastly, in my experience, it vastly depends on the situation. In some cases, there's like one, maybe one group that is obviously promoting, uh, you know, a bizarre and less credible view of things. and, and But in a lot of uh, scientific debates, we need more data and uh, good people can disagree.
1: Well, on that sort of we need more data point, then, of course, science is super iterative. And each time we go around, we get, you know, we have another set of results. What duty do we have to maybe keep up with the debates? If we stop covering something, does that mean, you know, if I was to Google it, the last answer is the correct answer. How, how do we keep up with it? And do we need to keep up with these things?
3: I think it's hard because if you start covering a story to then just stop if then it evolves a lot a long way after that it does feel a bit irresponsible but it's also hard because readers get tired editors get tired of a particular story you often get just one bite of the apple so you want it to be at the right time so sometimes you kind of you store it up so if you last wrote a story a couple of years ago and there's been a lot of uh, things going on in, in the interim
2: you might then wait uh, you know a year or two and then do your follow up I think it's fair to say we spend a lot, a lot of time talking about, oh, when is the right time to weigh back in on this particular topic? Well,
4: what helps, in my opinion, is, is that wherever we stop, you know, whatever is the, la- the latest episode we've covered, to always kind of give a sense that, you know, science never says the last word on anything. And that uh, there's always, you know, to the best of our knowledge, maybe we've come to this conclusion, but
1: who knows? I mean, do you think that the, uh, um, listeners, you can't see, but I'm doing inverted sort of air quotes here, the importance of a subject makes inferences on how often we cover it. Like if it was a vaccine story, would we be more likely to cover it than the flower story? No Mm -hmm. disrespect to to the researchers involved.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Although what defines importance is obviously depends on who you ask. So a story we covered blow by blow was when the BICEP2 experiment thought that it had seen gravitational waves in 2014. And that was immediately, there was a, big press conference about it. It was huge news, these kind of ripples from the early universe. But it soon emerged. It was challenged by lots of different people. And, and we covered that as it went along every week or so for a little while, perhaps. Um, but it was a really huge scientific
1: story. Well, finally, then in this episode of Backshat, let's talk about the internet, but perhaps not the internet as we know it. Uh, Davide, you've written a feature very recently about the quantum internet. Could you give us a little overview of what it is?
4: Well, well, first of all, it isn't yet. Um, mm-hmm. It's still a hypothetical thing that people are working on. They're working on designing it. They're working on demonstrating the physical principles of it. But the, the, the main idea is that there's this notion of quantum information, which is more complex than normal classical bits that are in, in normal classical computers, and that it's very hard to transport it, to
1: download it, to send it anywhere, but that's what the quantum internet would do. I mean, you've been reporting on this now for quite a while. I mean, you first wrote about it in 2008? Yeah,
4: I was in in a previous life, in a previous job. So I wrote about it first in 2008 and people were very optimistic that we would have the first working quantum internet devices within a few years. And uh, here we are 10 years later, we still don't have it. But people are still confident that they will have them within a few years.
1: Well, actually, David, I have the quote here that I think you're talking about. And this is from uh, Mikhail Lukin of Harvard University. And uh, this is from your 2008 piece. Uh, I'm optimistic that within a few years, we'll be able to build at least a lab demonstration of a quantum network. And this is something that I wanted to talk to you about. I think... We've all seen it, I'm sure, that in 10 years, scientists hope to have done X, you know, which uh, I find that an awful tease, right? And so it's so rare that you get that follow up in 10 years, but you've actually been able to do it, right? Like you started in 2008, it's 2018 now. How's the story evolved?
4: Well, they haven't quite done it, but the progress has been really substantial, uh, maybe slower than people expected. Um, Now, the uh, word from the Dutch scientists that I talked to is that they are hoping to have a working demonstration by the year 2020 connecting four uh, cities in the ne- in the Netherlands uh, this could turn out to be if it works out well kind of the quantum version of the famous ARPANET, which was kind of the progenitor of the classical internet, which also connected four
1: cities in the Western United States in the 1960s. So that's an, another two years away then, I guess. So so the, so the needle's moved further away again. But for, for me, sort of as a, as a regular punter, what can the quantum internet maybe do for me?
4: Ah, uh, it's very controversial whether it will have consumer applications, with one important exception, which is privacy. The one thing we know about quantum physics when it comes to communications is that you can use quantum physics to to communicate data securely. Then there are the more science fiction-y things, uh, and many have been proposed, like networking quantum computers together. Also, quantum computers are things that are, you know, a few years away and always will be maybe, but to make them communicate, you will need a way to transfer quantum information
1: what do we have to do to make sure that we don't get overexcited about this how do we avoid getting caught on the hype train and getting getting swept up in the excitement
4: so as a reporter who's been you know around the block a few times by now uh, i think i think experience helps and it also helps to see how people have covered uh, you know very promising very exciting research in the past and to see how that has stood the test of time so that, you know, that way you can see if you can, you know, maybe avoid falling into the same traps as people have in the past. Or you can see, you know, maybe there's people who have done a very good job and whose uh, coverage has stood the test of time and, and you can try and learn from them.
3: I think in this case, so in physics, we do get asked quite a lot of the time, okay, but what's it for? What's it Mm going to do? What's the why behind it? And you do have to come up with some kind of example. And I think it's a classic case with Davide's story. There are loads of very speculative, great ideas for what you might use a quantum internet for. Are they going to be actually what we use it for? Probably not. But at the moment, we don't even have this thing to play around with. But once that exists, then somebody else coming back to serendipity, it's probably going to say, oh, hey, like, we've now got this bit of kit. This is what I could now do, something I've been trying to do from a completely separate field for ages, and it's now been enabled. So you just don't know what the future holds. And therefore, you kind of have to grasp at straws a little bit. And obviously, the way to do it is to say, these are these are great ideas. These are possible, but not promise too much.
1: Well then, everyone, there you have it. Many thanks to my guests, Davide Castelvecchi, Heidi Ledford, and Lizzie Gibney for joining me today. You can read their work and more stories from the world of science over at nature.com slash news. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can reach us on Twitter. We're at naturepodcast or on email, podcast at nature.com. This has been Backchat. I've been Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. See you next time.